Welcome to the Anchored in Truth podcast. Anchored in Truth is an online ministry of Safe Harbor Baptist in Georgetown, Kentucky. Visit us online at safeharborbaptist.org. Our sermon passage for today will be uh, verses 1 through 16. And this is what we read from God's Word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked very hard, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we praise you as we read these names, that every name written under heaven is recorded by you, that you have created every single person who has ever lived, and they are made in your image. Lord, we give praise to you today knowing that we ourselves are made in your image by your care and your love. And we pray, Father, that we would see ourselves that way, as cared and loved for by you, that we would see one another in that way, as people made in your image with value and worth and dignity and meant to be an encouragement to us. Lord, so often we look at people through eyes of anger or dispute or bitterness or writing people off or just not caring. Lord, help us to see people through your eyes with your value and your importance. Lord, we thank you for the gift of being here with your people and knowing uh, one another in a meaningful way. 
that you've called us to. Just as Paul knew these people and recognized them in some way, even by just mentioning their names. Lord, we give thanks for the people that you have put in our lives. This church family, who we can speak each other's names and find joy and encouragement because of what they mean to us. Lord, most of all, we thank you for the gift of knowing you. That you have recorded the truth of who you are so that we might know and give thanks to you in the name of Jesus because of what he has done. Lord, we pray for other brothers and sisters in our community this morning as they gather in your name because of what you have done. We pray for the Emmanuel Baptist Church and for Brant and Eric, the pastors there, and many other people that we know are part of that congregation. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them as they gather around your word with your people. We pray that their faithfulness would leave that place this morning and go out into our community, that you would be honored through them. We pray for the nations of the world. We pray for the country of Argentina this morning as they are going into an election season. We pray that you might influence that country towards you, even through the elected officials and the decisions that are made. And Lord, that your hand and providence would guide the people of that nation in the election season, and that you would bless the people of that nation ultimately through the blessing of Christ. Lord, send workers to places in Argentina who, don't, uh, who have not heard of the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for your blessing to be on us now as we study and think about your word to us in the book of Romans. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. And uh, kids, if you would like to go downstairs to classes, you're welcome to do that and follow your teachers. And we are coming to the end of the book of Romans after spending some time in it. You might think that the book of Romans might end with some grand theological summary because that really is a, a very important aspect of the book of Romans, but that's not what we see in how Paul ends this book. But there's a reason for that. You know, in our world today, we are perhaps busier than any previous generation. When you think about all the activities that are available, and I was having a conversation with my grandmother uh, this week, who's 90 years old, and she just reflected on how many more activities there are now for kids, sports, and all the different types of sports, and all those things than, they, than there were even when my, my dad was growing up. Uh, but there's not just sports, there's academics, and all kinds of trips and travel and all these things, right? Better transportation. It's easier to travel. We are probably busier, I would dare say, than any previous generation. But I think because of the fact that we are busier than ever, a side or byproduct of that is that we have less meaningful relationships than ever. Not everybody, but generally speaking. We might have a lot of acquaintances. We go to a lot of places, see a lot of people, a lot of faces, might even know their names. But how well do we really know people? We may have thousands of Facebook friends or Instagram followers, but when it comes to sitting down and knowing people's heart, what they value, 
what they love, their experiences in life, what they've learned over the years? Are we finding deep joy and encouragement from people? Or are we just kind of familiar with who they are from a distance? And we, I think it's much harder in our culture that is busy to actually know people. A recent study that was done found that about 50% of Americans sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful. That's a, that's a large percentage. And the younger the generation, the higher per, that percentage is. In other words, the younger generation feels like they have less meaningful relationships than the older generation, in spite of all the activities, in spite of the social media access. So what is the answer for all this? Well, do we just get rid of all our technology and all our activities and just say, spend time together, guys. We're not going to do anything else. I don't think that's realistic. Well, today, as we approach the end of the book of Romans, we see a man, Paul, who had real friends and meaningful relationships with people in spite of great challenges, great distances between he and these people. And what we can learn is this is God's plan for us as his people. This is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus together as his people. That's what I think the big idea here in Romans 16 is. God's plan is for his people to find joy and encouragement in laboring together on this journey of serving Jesus. What's the secret to finding friendships and meaningful relationships? Laboring together for Jesus. That's simply it. Laboring together for Jesus. In Romans 16, Paul sees this vast group of people in the church at Rome, and he commends just average, ordinary, everyday Christians that he knows are living faithfully where they are, in godly, encouraging ways. Paul loved these people, and they were his family in the Lord. Now, what created this love? It wasn't that he spent vast amounts of time with them, necessarily. He had at some point, but some of them he really didn't know all that well, but he knew well enough that they loved Jesus, and that was enough for him to love them and to value them and to be encouraged by them. We would do well to evaluate our lives as followers of Jesus in the same way that Paul valued his relationships and the way he knew others what he lifted up as admirable in the lives of people. Paul was a godly man who saw people and strove to saw people in the way that, that God saw them. And he valued what God valued. And this should be our goal. We can find encouragement and joy as we look at the people around us, the people of God, and find them living in ways that please God and strive to do that ourselves as an encouragement to others. So what do we see here? What do we see as some really spiritual fruit in the lives of the members of this church in Rome that we can, can hone in on and lift up as, hey, this is something I want God to produce in me, and I want to value this in others. You know, this passage today is a little bit harder to preach than normal because it's like, oh, here's this name, and this person did this, and here's this, per this person's name, and this person did this, and it's just all over the place. And when I first read this, I was like, 
how in the world am I going to preach this? Am I just going to go name by name or, or what? But I think there are some, some principles that, that show up throughout the passage that Paul really points our attention to in these names of people and who they were and what they did and how they lived. So that's what I want to focus in on. And the key that we're, as we read these names, I want us to just remember that these people are living in a certain way because they walked with Jesus, right? The closer we are to Jesus, the more our lives are going to look like him. And we're going to be able to encourage others through our lives. And so four, four really principles or character traits that, that Paul admires in these people that God is producing in the lives of this church that we should consider for our own lives. First thing we see here is servanthood. Servanthood. Paul felt a love for many of the people listed simply because they were servants of Jesus and his church. They were co-workers. Paul saw, saw them as co-workers for the cause of Christ. The first person we see right away at the beginning of chapter 16 is Phoebe. Let me read verses 1 through 2 for us about Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Synchreae. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Paul also mentions, uh, verse 6, Mary as someone who worked hard for the church. Urbanus, a, a co-worker in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa in verse 12 who worked hard in the Lord. So we see a common theme in some of these people, right? These people are servants, people working hard for the sake of Jesus. And we just stop and, and say, hey, does this characterize my life? Would people say I work hard for Jesus? I may work really hard but do I work hard for Jesus? All right, Paul is saying, greet these people. You know what they are doing to serve you, the church, and how they are sacrificing for you and serving you. Paul saw all these workers as servants who loved and served Jesus and his church. Take a minute to look at this woman, Phoebe, in particular, because he spends two whole verses just on this one woman. First of all, Paul says that Phoebe was a benefactor, verse 2. Uh, the ben a benefactor, we don't really use that word much, or I don't. Uh, but a benefactor in the ancient world was really uh, someone who, was, it was an honored role. It was someone who uh, commissioned and funded the work of someone else. And so what Paul is saying here is Phoebe was one who commissioned and funded his work as a missionary. She personally took ownership of making sure Paul was funded on all his journeys around the ancient world as a missionary. In addition to being Paul's patron and helping to send Paul out, she was also one that Paul entrusted with the task of delivering this letter of Romans. Paul is saying, hey, welcome. I commend you, Sister Phoebe, likely because she is the one who's delivering the book of Romans to the church at Rome. That's an important task. Perhaps the greatest letter ever written, the book of Rome, Romans, was given to this woman to deliver to this church. If she hadn't done it, we wouldn't have it today. And so Paul valued Phoebe. 
And she is also called, we see in verse 1, a servant. That word servant is a translation in the English. The Greek word for servant is diakonos. Sounds like something else, doesn't it? Deacon. Right? So that, that word can be translated either way. Phoebe is a, could be just generally a servant or a deacon. And deacons, obviously, we know, many of you all know, are a group of people who are servants of the Lord's church. 1 Timothy 3 uh, lines out the, the qualifications for deacons, and they're appointed uh, to work alongside pastors. The pastors or the elders are, are given the task of teaching and oversight over the congregation. Deacons were given to the church to meet physical and material needs. We have deacons here at Safe Harbor who are faithful in meeting physical needs of the body. The question is, uh, you know, with this passage, and there's some debate over this, what version of the word is Paul using here? Diakonos. Is he talking about just a general servant? Was that what Phoebe was? Or was she a, a, an official deacon of the church? And just by reading this, we can't know exactly. We weren't there. Uh, it, there's an interpretive matter at stake here. Uh, but we, we know there are churches who have interpreted it both ways, uh, faithful but biblical churches. And the fact that she is tied to a specific church, she is a servant of a church in Syncrie, tends to lend itself to maybe it was, it's quite possible it was an official position of deaconess of that church. But this role, we, we have to be clear, would have been distinct from the role of pastor or elder. She wouldn't have been doing any of the tasks that the New Testament reserves only for men. Teaching, oversight, spiritual oversight over the congregation. Uh, when it comes to the role of deacon in the church, those of us in this room come from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different denominations. Uh, just out of show of hands, how many of y'all did not grow up in a Southern Baptist church? That's like half the church, right? And so there's a lot of confusion uh, a lot of teach, uh, different teachings about the roles of deacons. And I want to take just a moment to, to speak to this because there is a lot of confusion in different teachings. Uh, some of us have been taught, this is me, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, that uh, the office of deacons should be held only by men. And typically, I would say that that is taught in churches where deacons take on some type of role of spiritual authority in the church. Right? Many church, in many churches, I would say deacons wrongly function in a way that is reserved only for pastors or elders. And they mix the, there's some kind of hybrid office there where deacons, you may have one pastor or you may not have any pastor. And so the deacons kind of step up into that role and serve in a pastoral sense. And so in that, if that's the case, I would say, yes, deacons should be only men if they're serving in, in that way. But I would also say that's not really the picture of what we see deacons in the Bible as doing. The deacons are servants. In Acts 6, the first deacons, what did they do? Paul, the apostle said, appoint from yourself uh, people who will care for the widows who are being neglected in the food. Now, I don't think any of us would have a problem with a woman taking care of people getting food. In fact, many of you all do that all the time, and I'm thankful for that. But we have been taught different things about what deacons are and what they do, and so some churches say, well, deacons should be only men because they have some type of spiritual authority. 1 Timothy 2 is clear. Listen, the, the spiritual oversight of the church 
should be given to men by God's design, his plan for the genders. The role of men and women in the family and the church are clearer in God's design. Now, some of you all have been taught in faithful, Bible-believing churches that women can be deacons or deaconesses. And this is not just in liberal churches. Right? There are a lot of conservative churches that believe the Bible that have women deacons. We just may not have experienced that in our life, or some of you all in your experiences. But in these churches, deacons truly do serve in a servant-type role, right? not with spiritual authority or oversight. And we see that with Romans 16. People point to that verse. But then we also see in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 11. Let me read that verse for us where it talks about the qualifications for deacons. It says this in verse 11. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful, and everything. Again, this is a, uh, a translation. That word wives in the original Greek is the same word that is used for women. It could be translated wives or women, right? So you could say wives, deacons' wives should be worthy of respect, slanderers, self-controlled, faithful. Or you could say women should be worthy of respect, self-controlled. Again, it could be translated either way. And the fact that your Bible in English says wives is a translation. We need to recognize that. But it, the, the question I would have in reading that, and the question some people bring up is, why would Paul clarify that deacons' wives should meet these qualifications, but there's nothing said about elders' or pastors' wives that need to meet qualifications? Unless he's talking about, well, women should meet these qualifications. Which means he's implying it could be women deacons. right? And we know, listen, in, in Southern Baptist churches, there's a variation. There are Southern Baptist churches that have female deacons serving in areas like mercy ministry and children's ministry and women's ministry and greeting and hospitality. In fact, some of the roles that we have in our congregation, some churches would call them deaconesses. We call them ministry leaders. But the role is the same. It's a title. All right. The Baptist faith and message specifies the role of office and elder should be reserved for men, according to the Bible. But for deacons, it doesn't say. It leaves it open. And there are Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, that have both. In the early church, we see the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, where they, they recognize that there was a presence of deaconesses in the early church. It, it was there. Church history, John Calvin supported. Charles Spurgeon acknowledged women deacons. Today, well-known pastors like John MacArthur, John Piper, Mark Dever, guys that nobody would accuse of being liberal. All right, nobody would accuse them of. They are conservative. All would affirm women deacons. Now, uh, and then like the Presbyterian Church of America, our sister congregation, our sister denomination, which is a conservative church, a conservative denomination of churches, have women deacons, R.C. Sproul, folks like that. Now, none of these people would affirm that the role of deacon would have anything to, to look like what a pastor or an elder is, right? It's different. But really, it comes down to what does the church agree on? What does the church understand a deacon to be, the role of a deacon? What do they do? And what does Scripture back up? And there's some, some interpretations that could go either way. And you can still be faithful to Scripture. You're still striving to be faithful to God's Word. Is it a position of spiritual authority, teaching, or is it a servant of the church? The Bible's clear. The word deacon means servant. 
Well, regardless of where you land, I would just throw that out there as food for thought and study. Because I've studied a lot over the years and because I've heard different opinions, right? And I've really tried to study it. And I'm happy to give you some resources. We as elders uh, recently read a book on deacons together and studied this and really sat down. And we, at the end, we just went around the table. All right, where do you land? Where do you land? Where do you land? After studying God's word, right? And, uh, and we all kind of landed in the same place. But if you all uh, need resources or things to studies on the, on the passages, I'm happy to point you in those directions. But regardless of where you land, listen, we know right here, Paul is clear, women were important in the life of the church in Rome. This, this lady, Phoebe, was valued and held high as a servant of God's church that Paul valued. What we do know is he recognized her and others as laborers together with him for Jesus. And he gave her an important task to do. Romans 16, people from all backgrounds were here in this church in Rome serving the Lord together. I mean, there's slaves and free. There's wealthy and poor, men and women. You know, and the the whole point of here is these people had a heart that they were there to serve. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, when we think about people like Phoebe, people like Mary, in this this passage and others. You think of church primarily in terms of wanting to be served? Like, what can I get out of it? Or how can I go and serve the Lord faithfully alongside faithful brothers and sisters? When I came in here this day, how can I serve the Lord today with God's people? It doesn't have to be some official title. It doesn't have to be some position. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher to do it. You can serve the Lord simply by talking to people and praying with them. Mark 10 verse 45 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We as the people are called to have the heart of Jesus, which means his heart to serve should become our heart to serve. And church isn't about us, what we can get out of it. How can we serve the Lord and worship him with our lives find encouragement from others who are serving him when we gather together as his people. And God calls us to work diligently, not for the praise of men, but for the glory and the praise of God. And so find encouragement today in those who serve the Lord faithfully. Look at their lives and give God praise and glory for those who are serving him and say, God, how can I do that? How can others see me as one who they can find encouragement and joy in because they see me serving Jesus? And they know, hey, this matters, and it's important, and it's all for God. So Paul commends those modeling servanthood. I promise you every point is not going to be that long. All right? All right. So the next point, servanthood. Next, the next attribute we see is sacrifice. Is sacrifice. Paul sees the risks and the sacrifice of the people that are, they're willing to make for Jesus. Look at verse 3. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. In Acts 18, we also see these same two people emphasized. Prisca and Aquila are called Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened, all the details of what happened with uh, these people and Paul, but it seems that they risked their own life to save, to save Paul's, right? They took a risk for Jesus, 
and ended up saving the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul says, listen, I give thanks for them, and so do all the churches. Why? Because they saved my life. I could be sent to those churches, those Gentile churches, and bring the gospel to them, and you have them to thank for that. Because if I wasn't alive, it wouldn't have happened. And, they, and, and so we see how much they were willing to risk for the cause of Christ, their own lives. We see that today, right? People who go to unreached lands, Muslim militant countries who lay down their lives for the cause of Christ. We have to ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves, would I be willing to do that? Do I love Jesus that much? Would I, if I was in the shoes of Priscilla and Aquila, would I have been willing to lay down my life to save Paul's? Is Jesus, Jesus worth that? Worth it to me? And we also see that Prisca and, and, Prisca and Aquila did this as a couple. Right? He doesn't say Aquisca, uh, Aquila did it because he was the man. He says they both did it together. Right? Here we see a picture of a husband and a wife serving the Lord, taking risks, sacrificing for the cause of Christ. And they were ready to die together, if need be, for Jesus. Now, husbands and wives of Safe Harbor, how much are you willing to sacrifice and risk together for the sake of Christ? What does that look like in your life? Verse 7, and we see another couple, or another two people that were um, sacrificing for Jesus. Andronicus and Junia says, verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. You see what he said? He sees, the, he sees these people, and they are in prison for the sake of Jesus. My fellow prisoners. Like, that's a good thing. I mean, how many of y'all talk about, hey, greet so-and-so in prison. They're my fellow prisoners. I've never said that. Right? But he recognizes, no, they are in prison because of Jesus. And they're laying it on the line. They're putting themselves, risking their own freedom to get the gospel out. And Paul gives thanks and wants them to know he finds encouragement in them while they're in prison. They were a source of joy for him. Consider that Jesus sacrificed everything for you. He died. He laid down his life to offer you salvation. When you were far from God, dead in sin, when you knew that you had sin in your life, Christ laid down his life, sacrificed himself for you to give you new life, to bring you forgiveness. Do you know him? Do you love him for that? Are you willing to risk your life for him because you love him that much and you know what he's done for you and you know you have eternity ahead of you regardless of what happens now? What are you holding on to that you won't die to for Jesus' sake? Could be a feeling, could be bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. It could be things you don't want to give up materially. Jesus laid it all for your salvation and your eternal joy. We shouldn't be willing to hold anything back from him. We knew that the people in Rome didn't look highly on Christians. They burned Christians upside down, crucified them. 
And yet these people were willing to go to the end with Jesus. Be encouraged by those around you who are willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. But don't just say, oh, that's them, that's not really me. Don't just write it off like, oh, I could never do that. God wants us to ask ourselves the hard questions. What are you willing to sacrifice for his sake? And ask him to give you the wisdom to do it. The third attribute we see Paul commend in this church is friendship. Friendship. Paul has some familiarity with all the people he mentioned. He knows their names. right? He, he's writing this from hundreds if not thousands of miles away. He knows their names. Four people in particular though, Paul calls dear friends in this passage I just read. He says, he calls Epinatus, Ampliatus, Stachus, and Persis his dear friends in the Lord. Now throughout church history, if you know anything about church history, the gospel has often advanced not just through individuals going out by themselves, but through teams or friends of people who, because of their meaningful friendships, supported and encouraged each other in their love for Jesus and served him together. It's very rare that you find a solo operator having a great influence for Christ on their own. A student of revival movements uh, throughout history says it this way, history is transformed among friends. You want to transform the world for the cause of Christ? Have godly friends who will walk that with you. Some notable examples. Jesus, with Peter, James, or Peter, James, and John, right? The, the, the inner circle of friends. Called John the, the one who he loved, the, the disciple he loved. Paul and Barnabas. John Calvin and John Knox, who lived on different continents or lived different countries, who served the Lord together in the Reformation. The Holy Club at Oxford, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. Different theologies, close, meaningful friendship, that brought about a great awakening. C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of Rings trilogy. You may not have known. They were good friends, and they encouraged each other as they wrote those books. Those books, how many of y'all have read them? A lot, probably. Right? They have encouraged generations of Christians. Right? The gospel is often spread by friends who serve the Lord together. Paul himself was encouraged by these friends of his. He wrote in other letters how much he spurred on by the prayers and the ministry visits and the support of other godly Christians who are his friends. Do you see the value of cultivating godly friendships? What does that look like in your life? I mean, I'm talking about meaningful, deep, spiritual-oriented, godly friendships do you sit down and just pour out your struggles, your prayers, what God's teaching you? Do you hear people's testimonies? Do you share yours? You go and share the gospel together. Do you minister to others together? Do you value that and do you intentionally work to cultivate that in your lives or are you just content to operate as a solo Christian? Yeah, you may see other Christians and kind of know them uh, on the surface a little bit but you're a little bit afraid, if you're honest, to, to get too close. You're afraid they might let you down. We've all been let down by 
other Christians, Christian friends. But here we see it is worth the risk. It was worth the risk to Paul to know these people on a level he could call them dear friends. And Romans 16 illustrates a better path than just trying to do it ourselves. But it takes real effort, doesn't it? You, it takes effort in our busy world to get to know people. you got to make appointments and set times and figure out where we're going to meet and make yourself uh, available and transparent. you got to invite people in and figure out, hey, I, I have a, an hour here, let's, let's meet then. Put yourself in a place where you can serve together. You know, this is why I love going on mission trips. Because on a mission trip, you don't have all those other busy things, and you can just sit and serve side by side together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't know if you all have ever been on a mission trip, but I have, every single time I go on a mission trip, not only do I get the benefit of spreading the gospel and serving the Lord, I get the benefit of getting to know our brothers and sisters and seeing their love for the Lord too, and seeing how they sacrifice and and serve, and there's great encouragement as you cultivate those friendships, and it's at a deeper level than it was when you left. And that's why I encourage everybody to go on a mission trip. Don't miss the blessing of being encouraged by godly friendships. And don't miss the encouragement of being a blessing by seeking to be a godly friend and taking the risks and the initiative to make that happen. All right, so we see the, how Paul values friendships in this church. Last, we see he values faithfulness. A common thread throughout all these people that Paul lists is simply faithfulness. He commends people recognizing these are ordinary lay people with no theological training who are just faithful to Jesus. They're not perfect. This church was not full of perfect people. No church is. But they were faithful. Notice that there's just this army of people doing ministry. It's a list of people from various social classes, and men and women, and churches, families, individuals, all types of people, all types of places, serving and loving the Lord. Look at some of the examples. In verse 5, he says, greet the church that meets in the home. Right Here we see the faithfulness of just a church to gather together, even if it just means meeting in their home. How many of y'all would be willing to host a church in your home? Right, it's a, There's a sacrifice there. And yet they're faithful to meet and worship the Lord. Verse 10, Apelles approved in Christ, right? Here's a man who he sees, and all he sees, man, Jesus loves him. He's approved in Christ. He's forgiven. He's not perfect, but he's growing in holiness or righteousness, apparently Christ-likeness. Whatever he saw in his life, that's what he thought of. Verse 11, Herodian, he saw as a fellow Jew. Well, how does that point to faithfulness? Well, this was a man who was willing to give up the Jewish lifestyle, regulations, law, for the sake of following Jesus. And Paul knows that's not easy. right? He used to kill Christians for doing that. And he's saying, no, he's willing to, to sacrifice and be faithful to what the Lord calls him to do and to put aside the, the old traditions. Verse 11, the household of Narcissus. He's talking about a whole household here, serving the Lord faithfully. It's a challenge to us. How are we leading our houses to serve the Lord, to be faithful to him? Or are we just content to do it ourselves? Verse 13, Rufus, as a man chosen in the Lord. All right, so what do, we, what do we know about Rufus? Not much, but why would Paul say that? Well, maybe Rufus uh, had come to know and believe the truth that God had chosen him, as Ephesians 1 said, before the foundation of the world in Christ, according to his, God, his sovereign grace. Or maybe Rufus was the worst sinner Paul knew besides himself. 
And the fact that God chose him amazed Paul. And he wanted to praise God, that God would save that sinner. But that's true for all of us, isn't it? We are all sinners. And the fact that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, if you are a follower of Jesus, that says something about our God and how much he loves us. You know, we don't know exactly what was going on with Paul and Rufus there, but when Paul saw him, he saw him as a man chosen by God because he was faithful and he was serving the Lord. So let this be one of the things that endears us to other people. Look around you. In this room, you see people who are following Jesus. These are people that God chose in spite of their own failings. Before they had done anything good, anything that they could have said they deserved, God to save them. God chose them. How can the people that God sees as precious and that he chose not be precious to us? Right? These are faithful people because of God and his work. And then verse 13, it's interesting. I don't know if you all caught this when we read it earlier. He says, greet Rufus, also his mother and mine. What does this mean? Does this mean Paul and Rufus are brothers? No. Rufus's mother was Paul. Paul saw her as a spiritual mother, right? Somebody who invested in him spiritually. We as a church need a church full of spiritual mothers. Every single one of you ladies in this room can be a spiritual mother. You can take time to invest in people who are younger than you in the faith and mother them in the ways of the Lord. Starts with our own families, but it doesn't have to be your family. It can be anybody in this room. And Paul sees, hey, this is faithfulness. Right? Let's just invest in people. And Titus talks about this, where it's talking about being older women, discipling younger women. Right? This is a pattern throughout the, the Bible. It's called to be spiritual mothers and fathers, by the way, too. So what characterizes this church is just faithful ordinary Christians who were present, who showed up, who stayed connected, who worshiped together, who were known by one another, who served one another, who took time to, to invest in one another, who were growing in Christ-likeness, in holiness, in homes and in churches by themselves. They were serving the Lord. It seems basic. It seems pretty elementary. And yet so often, we get so focused on this big thing we want to do, we forget the basics. Just being present, being with people goes a long way. Investing in the lives of others. You don't have to do some amazing thing for God to be valuable to God. Another way to think about it is, are you taking initiative in ministry? Who are you initiating relationships with? Who are you initiating meeting with? Who are you trying to get together and pray with? Who are you inviting into your D group or your Bible study? Or are you waiting for it to be provided for you? Are you a producer for God's kingdom? Or are you a consumer of the goods and services of the church? God calls us to be faithful in the little things and be used by him. Paul wrote a letter 
to Safe Harbor Baptist Church, would he include your name? Greet such and such, because I know them, and I know they're striving, following after Jesus. Or would you be anonymous to Paul? Would you, who would you mention if you were writing a letter to Safe Harbor Baptist Church? Greet such and such, because they are an encouragement to me. Do you know anybody like that? My prayer is that you could list 26 people like Paul could. Because you're out there getting to know people. Let me just encourage you. Find one or two even this week to encourage. To get to know. To hear their story. About how God has worked in their life. And you will be encouraged. Verse 16, Paul closes with, with saying, Greet with a holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Now that phrase was a way in the early church that just showed, they showed warm affection to each other. We don't do that around here. In Puerto Rico, as a side note, we went to Puerto Rico a few years ago on a mission trip uh, during, after Hurricane Maria. Uh, Chad was there and a few others. And uh, during the Sunday service, they greeted each other with a holy kiss on the cheek. And so we're going to start implementing that next week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was super awkward. Uh, <laughs> For this uh, guy who likes his box, all right? But uh, so Paul, Paul, they took that, that verse literally. Now Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. What we see here is, listen, Paul is not writing the book of Romans just as a doctrinal thesis. Like, I'm just going to lay out all these truths. No, he's writing to people he knows and loves and cares about. And Paul was a man with Meaningful friends. He wasn't lonely. He was encouraged by others, even if he couldn't spend a lot of time with them because he knew them. 26 different names are mentioned. And Paul speaks of how they loved him and how they loved and served one another. There is an inter interconnectivity in this church that is remarkable. It wasn't people just showing up on Sunday and not really knowing each other. Forgetting each other's lives. And this is how it should be for God's people. We should want to know each other. And why did it happen? Because whatever wall there was between them, Jesus broke it down. Their love, their common love for Jesus was enough to overcome the barriers that they had between them. And this is true, this should be true in our families, in our friendships in all of us who love and claim the name of Jesus Christ. The love for Jesus, a common love for Jesus, is greater than any potential division between Christians. So if a division remains, what's lacking is our love for Jesus and really knowing Him and following Him. Listen, we all have room to grow in these areas, to serving and sacrificing and being a Christ-honoring friend and being faithful to Jesus. And I don't want us to leave here beat up. I want us to be encouraged that if God can do that in this church, then he can do that in us. Because it's the same God, the same Christ, the same Spirit of God that lives in us, that lived in the church in Rome. But first you have to ask, have I experienced the saving power of Jesus like this? Because if you haven't, if you don't love Jesus like this church loves Jesus, you're not going to look like them. You've got to 
First of all, be willing to lay down your life and say, Christ, I am yours, all yours. I'm not holding back. In the book of Romans, the book of Romans, we see that it's clear we are desperately lost and hopeless apart from Christ. But with him, when he takes the penalty of our sin and shows us his love and grace, that becomes who we are. And we live it out. But you have to receive him and you have to accept him yourself, the truth, the whole truth. When you know and live with that reality in mind, I am lost and desperate apart from Christ, and yet he came to me and loved me and he has offered me new life, and I've said yes to him, it compels us to live for him as we love and serve one another as his people. Well, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for how this church has been recorded in history as a church that loved and served you and encouraged Paul in the gospel work he did and how you used these people. And that we are beneficiaries of that even today. We may not be able to trace it back line by line, but we know because there were faithful churches centuries ago that we have received the gospel as it's been passed down from generation to generation through faithful Christians who followed you together. Lord, help us to be a church that is faithful to you and serving you together so that generations from now, if the Lord tarries, that others might receive the gospel because of us. And yet, may we not wait till then. May we live in such a way that we encourage and find joy in one another, that our gospel presence and gospel witness goes out to our community even as we leave this place. Father, we pray that you would make this a part of who we are in Jesus as we follow him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.